Well, it's the bookcase again, and welcome back. I'm Charlie Gibson. And I am Kate Gibson, and I am really excited to be here today. Unless I'm wrong, this is our first fantasy author, and I'm very excited. We're going to talk today to Ayana Gray. This interview I actually taped at the Brooklyn Book Festival a while ago. I'm so excited that she would talk to me because I am a big fan of her two books, Beast of Ruin and Beast of Prey, both of which are super fun. And they're terrific fantasy books set in a sort of pan-African world. You know, it's interesting because fantasy, I think, up until the last five or six years has largely been a white genre. I mean, when you picture fantasy worlds, you largely picture wizards that are white and princesses that are white. And and I think in some ways with the arrival of American consciousness in the last few years, not to mention the commercial success of Black Panther, it's opened up a gate for fantasy writers of all kinds to provide windows into worlds that we haven't seen before. I read something, for instance, a few years ago called Tristan Strong Punches a Hole in the Sky, which is based entirely on African and West African folklore. This book is Pan-African. It takes place in this amazing Pan-African world that Ayana Gray created. And I'm big, big, big fans of these books. If I can get a word in here edgewise. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> this, is, this is a category of books that I really sort of have to leave to Kate. There weren't well, I, I suppose Lord of the Rings, etc., and The Hobbit was fantasy books of my age. And I never got them, I must say. And I don't get fantasy now. So I leave this really to you. And you did the interview with Ayanna Gray, which I found really interesting because I think back to what Julia Glass, when we interviewed her, and she quoted Sue Miller, and Sue Miller saying that when I write a book, all of my characters are my employees which I thought was a really interesting, I control them, I make them up. But when you're writing fantasy, mm -hmm. and particularly in this case, you not only have employees in your characters, but you create a whole world. And that's not so easy to get the reader to think in that context. This is a whole world that this writer has created. And I need to see it. I need to visualize it. I need to feel it, in effect to really get the book. In some ways, I think it's a trust that the reader has to put in a fantasy author. You have to trust, like, if you're going to create a whole world where there are rules and cultures and traditions and histories, you put a lot of faith in the writer that the writer is going to bring you along and going to explain it to you in a way where you have to do some work, but not a lot of work. And a lot of science fiction, science fiction and fantasy sort of drops you into the world from chapter one, and it can take you a little while. N.K. Jemison is brilliant at this. She drops you into a world, and then a couple of chapters later, you know where you are. But it takes a couple of chapters, and you have to trust that they're going to do that. Well, let me ask you about that. What's the difference between fantasy and science fiction? Science fiction, I guess, is all set in the future, and fantasy can be set in the present. But basically, both science fiction writers and fantasy writers are creating alternative worlds. They are, in my mind, and this is entirely created in my own mind. So literary scholars, please plug your ears. In my mind, it has to do with machines. <laughs> Science fiction involves machines, whereas fantasy, not so much. And again, this is totally my own distinction in my head, that science fiction involves some sort of technology. And uh, man, am I probably going to get a lot of letters from huge science <laughs> fiction fans about this. <laughs> well, these two books that she has written, 
are part of a trilogy, right? Yes, yes. There's a third book to come. Yes. And aspiring writers out there everywhere, you're going to be kind of jealous of her biography. She graduated in like May or June. She started writing like that week and five years later, this was published. She is amazing. And when she sat down to create this world, I want you to pay attention in this interview to sort of how she created this world where these two books take place and her two amazing characters, Kofi and Ekon live. She really believes in creating the place first and creating a whole infrastructure to the place, that that is what is most important. And the character and story follow that. So this is a unique conversation for us that way. Yeah, it is. And as I say, I leave fantasy to you because if you tell me this is good fantasy, I'll believe you. I read one of the two books and I I struggle with it. I, I honestly do. This is, I think, for a younger generation of which you are one than me. So anyway, this is Kate's conversation with Ayana Gray, who is a very interesting author. And as Kate says, had the audacity to start writing this trilogy the day she graduated from college, as she will tell you. Here's Kate's conversation with Ayanna Gray. Ayanna Gray, it is so great to have you in the book, Kate. I don't usually have authors break down plots or places because I've read them, you've read them. But when it comes to fantasy, I feel like it's important to establish the picture. Tell me about Ashosa and how you saw it and what your vision of it is. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me. It's so nice to be back in Brooklyn. Okay, so Ashosa, it is this big Pan-African-inspired world. I've been to the African continent, and if you've ever gotten to see it, it's this lush, beautiful place with so many different deserts and jungles and forests and thriving cities and small villages, and there's a magic innately there. And so I wanted to create a fantasy world that captured all of that. So it's this world with lots of different peoples and cultures that are all kind of trying to interact and engage with each other. There's really deep set mythology and religion that people adhere to. It's been fun in the series to explore how different people from different regions feel about maybe the same deity, but in a different place. It's a lot of wish fulfillment. It's writing a fantasy world that I didn't get to find when I was a kid. But it's a world in which magic is not necessarily welcome. There's almost a touch of Salem in there in terms of the way that Dirajas are treated. What is a Diraja? And tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So in this world, we have Dirajas. Diraja is the Swahili word for bridge. And it's, you know, when you read the books, you find out it's because of the way people deal with magic and they are bridges. They take it from the earth and sort of channel it. They are a bridge between cosmic and what's mundane in the earth. And like anything, I think whenever you see people who exhibit any sort of power, you respond to it differently. Some people really admire it and want to have it. And some people fear it. And because people react different ways when they have fear. They do things to oppress these people and keep them from having too much power. So that's something that interests me personally. And I wanted to, again, use fantasy to explore it. You're the first person that I've talked to who's writing a trilogy, which I'm super excited about because I want to know how much of a unique process it is. So I want to start with when you decided that you were going to create this world and these characters, what came to you first? Was it the story? Was it the place? Or was it the people? It's always the place. It's always the world because I have to understand the world. And like I said, who has power and who doesn't to understand what sort of story naturally fits there. And then once I have a story, I get even more you know, detail. I think about what kinds of people could fit into that story. So it starts really grand and synthesizes down. How do you get to know the place, though? What's your actual process? Do you draw out a big map and then say, this is this and this is this? Or like, how do you get 
because people get to know their writers get to know their characters differently, mm-hmm. but you have to get to know a whole different the world. world. So how do you yeah. do that? I make a fake Wikipedia page, actually. Really? Like it's not posted on Wikipedia, but you know, like I always tell people, if you were to Wikipedia Jamaica or okay. Wikipedia Canada or Ghana, you have a main page and it'll have like a quick summary of the country. And then you have all these subsections, history, geography, currency, language, traditions, what percentage of the population has this religion. But I use that as kind of a starting guide. And the thing is, I have this page for my own records and not all those details make it into the books, but I know it so that if I do have to write a wedding scene one day, I happen to already know what the custom around marriage looks like. What do brides wear in this world? Brides don't wear white. They wear different colors to signify what they want in their marriage. And so there was a point where I was like, maybe there'll be a wedding in this book. But maybe not. But if there is, and now I know. So I like to really immerse myself in the world and write out this big document before I even start writing. How long did that take? Oh, I don't remember because I've pieced it. It's been over time. Yeah. Like, are you still adding to it, Shoza? Yeah, because book one starts in the east, and yeah. then in book two we go south, and now I'm writing book three, and we're moving west. I have it there, but it's expanding and expanding, and I'm asking new questions that I'm like, oh, I haven't thought about that. What should I do here? And I literally just discovered, quote unquote, some new mythology just by writing it like, oh, that's cool. And there's room for that. I've kind of built my, I've like kind of guided myself into that naturally and now it fits. And so, yeah. Did you have a picture when you did the trilogy of how the whole thing was going to go? The first book is going to be, you know, this and we're going to get to know the Splendor and we're going to, and then the second book is this. And I mean, do you had it meticulously all plotted out? Yes and no. So I, people are always like plotter or pantser and, you know, you have these writers who, plot in a detail, like every single moment. And then you have the Panthers who are like, I don't want to plan anything. I just want to go with whatever the impulse is. And I feel like it's more of a spectrum instead of one or the other. I tend to plot maybe 85, 90% of my stories, but I always leave myself a little bit of wiggle room because sometimes when I'm writing, a better idea comes. And that can be good and bad. Like sometimes it's a better idea and it very naturally fits into what I'm doing. But sometimes I think of a better idea and I'm like, And now I've got to scrap like 20,000 words and I'm like, I want to pull out my hair, but I know in the back of my head that it's going to make for a better story by doing it that way. Sometimes you have to try the quote unquote bad way first and figure out that there's a, that's not working. So I do plot a lot. I need some sense of direction, but I do try to leave myself a little bit of space. You now got, and it shows a Wikipedia page. And now you know that you want to sort of get to know your two main characters, Kofi and Ekon. Do you finish the place first and then get to know them and then go to the plot? A little bit of both. So with Beasts of Prey, like, okay, so they're in real life were these two male lines called the Savo Maneaters who really did terrorize like hundreds of people at one point in history. And I, so the question that comes to my head as a writer is what would it be like to live in that kind of world? Like imagine a whole city where people are in fear. I bet after a while they put together some sort of armed force to deal with this. What would it be like to be a young man working in this service that doesn't really want to be there, doesn't feel like he fits in. And so I'm asking all of these questions and that's how Econ came to be. Conversely, what if there was, you know, a magical, what if there was a zoo experience, but they were mythical creatures instead of normal animals? What would it be like to work there? What would it be like if you had to work there? Why would you have to work there? Oh, maybe you have a debt to pay off. How would it feel to have to pay off a debt that you didn't incur, that your parents incurred, and now you have to shoulder that burden And so I'm asking myself questions and the characters sort of build around those questions. But you've given your character some real life problems. I mean, I could be wrong, but Ekon clearly has anxiety. Oh, yeah. How did you I mean, was that always a part of his portrait? Did you always know anxiety was going to be a part of his character? 
it came really organically. And I think it's one of those moments where you put pieces of yourself into a story without realizing you're doing it. And then when you're finished, you're like, oh, okay, I need to unpack that. Because Ekon, to me, is he as a character, I relate to him a lot. He makes a lot of sense. For him, as a child, so much was out of his control and inconsistent. So he, very early on, looked for what was consistent. Numbers are consistent. Books are consistent. Knowledge is consistent. And he really relies on that. So as I was writing him, it literally just, I was writing a scene in one day, like it made sense to me to write one, two, three. Three is his number. And then it it's hard to explain, but it just sort of happened and it made sense and it clicked in my head. And so I knew there was going to be this young man who didn't want to really be in the position he was in. But then I ended up putting a little bit of myself and how I navigated the world when I was 17 into him. What was the timeline of when you started writing this book? I can almost give you the day. It would be like right around May 9th, 2015. And that I know that because I graduated from college on May 9th, 2015. And it was like right after I got home, boxes all around my old bedroom. And I remember feeling really scared and feeling very much like I'd failed because all of my friends were studying, you know, they were going to medical school, law school, they were getting PhD programs and traveling. And I wanted to be a lawyer, but then I decided I didn't want to. So I had this degree and this plan based on being a lawyer and I wasn't going to be a lawyer. So I was at home really panicked about like, what am I going to do with my life now? Because I've never been in a position where I didn't have a plan. And I started writing as a way to cope with that and as a way to sort of escape that existential quarter life, not even quarter life crisis. That's interesting. Now I see more parallels between you and Ekon. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, life mission goes away. And where's the plan? What are you left with? Yep. I have never met an author who uses social media the way that you do. I don't know if that's a good thing. No, it is. I think it's fantastic. You're very strategic about the way you used social media. And I think book talk has been amazing for you. I mean, when you started writing, you were like, okay, social media is this amazing tool and I need to just grab it and run with it. What is your philosophy as you approach the social media? It's changed. It's definitely changed because now there are more people looking at you, looking, you know, quotes around it. I'm a millennial, so I grew up with Facebook, with Instagram, with I've had Insta- my Instagram account for 10 years, you know, with Twitter, and it's I've watched it evolve, like a lot of, I think, millennials, and TikTok is obviously the newest, and it's weird because now I'm in this space where I'm like, oh, this feels, this almost doesn't, I almost feel too old for it now. I went into it with TikTok specifically, that was when I was actually an author, so that was the first social media platform that I got onto with the mentality of, oh, I could use this to tell more people about the books I write. And I tried at first to like follow the trends, you know, TikTok's super trend heavy. And I tried it with mediocre results. And then I just was kind of like, mm, whatever, like, I'm just going to talk about what I know and what I care about. And if it resonates, it works. And it has. That's really when my following grew is when I started talking about Black history, which I'm passionate about and being like, hey, if you're into this, I write books that like inject Black history into fantasy. Check me out if you want to. And I was telling someone recently, it's really an authentic, it's very authentic based platform. Gen Z, I feel like really sees through a lot of the BS and they can tell when you're like, hello, youths, buy my book. Whereas when you're just being yourself, people want to support you. They want to know more about you. So I've just, as cheesy as it sounds, tried to be myself with boundaries. For a long time, you're right, though. For a long time, though, the world of fantasy was one color. When do you feel like that started to change? And have you felt like your work has been pushed back on because of those expectations of fantasy? Um, I couldn't point to a definitive year or moment. And there have been authors, you know, who've been pushing for decades, to be clear. 
They just haven't gotten their due until more recently. Fair enough. People are discovering them now. (laughs) Um, I think with the rise in kid-led movements, like we need diverse books, which I want to say was like mm, 2015, 14-ish, don't quote me. But when people started to create organizations and band together and not just ask, but demand for a change, especially in kid-led and talking about the fact that Literature is especially powerful. Children are forming their worldviews based on the books they're reading. And how on earth can they form a progressive and diverse and well-rounded idea of the world if the stories they're reading only feature one kind of hero? They can't. Or what happens to the kids who never see themselves? What does that message, what, what are they being told about where they fit in the world? I know it took me years as a Black woman to unpack like this idea of, oh, I'm not allowed to be in the center, or there has to be a white woman or a white man, or my story doesn't have the same validity or legitimacy. So it's been, I think I'm really fortunate and privileged, frankly, to be in this kind of renaissance moment where suddenly people are paying attention and realizing that, frankly, these books not only are literarily very, very good books, but also they sell. Because that was another myth. We don't know how to market this. We don't know where the consumer market is for this. There is very much a consumer market for these stories. So So you knew you were going to write a trilogy. Not always. And so one of the things I heard was, if you're a debut unheard of author, don't try to sell some big series. No one's going to want to buy a bunch of books from an unproven name. So I tried to make that trilogy into one big book. And my agent was like, this is ambitious. (laughs) He was very, very tactful about it. But he was like, this is ambitious. I think this is more than one book. And it was interesting because the minute he said that, it was like, oh, I have permission. He, like, he didn't mean to, but he sort of like an industry professional opened that gate and gave me permission and said, you don't have to confine what you have to say to one book. And it was life-changing. What's the technique then that you use to say, okay, this has to be a unit and then the second one's going to be a unit and this is how I'm going to split them up. And does it change the way you write at all? A little bit. I think, um, you know, you talk about beats in writing, like what are the big moments that we're working toward? So I had those beats, but then once I had... I knew I could write more than one book. I was like, okay, these, it's almost like you picture every, all these dots clustered together and then you can sort of stretch them out and then think about what goes in between them because now you have new real estate to work. Okay, how did we get from A to B? Now we can actually ask that question instead of having to move so fast. So, and the world building, we can expand. You have the space to describe things and go into more detail because you have the space now. I noticed with the second book, like every chapter was a cliffhanger because there's, you know, two multiple stories going on. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was I was wondering, I was like, oh, I bet she's having fun, you know, because the chapter would be like, and then he heard a voice and then you go to the next chapter and you're like, wait, 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 wait. Um, I bet that was fun. It is book two. Second books, as I've now learned, are really hard because in like the classic three act structure, that's act two. That's the middle so it has to bridge. It has to take all of what you've done with book one, maintain that momentum, but also continue, like keep it up enough that people want to get to the third book, but it also has to stand on its own. So it was tough. But yeah, that was one of the things I tried to do to keep it moving forward is have these cliffhangers. And that's the thing about kid lit too. Kids like to really have their attention constantly grabbed. So I want to know all sorts of things about the technique. When you start the second book, And they say it has to be able to stand alone. So you know that there are some readers you're going to have to clue in as to what happened in the first book. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? And how do you know? And how do you go, oh, God, I'm getting way, I've fallen down the rabbit hole of book one. and I Like explaining it again. And how do you know Um, too much is too much or too little is too little? I have a really lovely editor (laughs) who is here (laughs) who um, um, lets me know (laughs) very, really kindly. You know, I think I would rather 
have maybe too much and then be told to take it out than not have enough. But I also don't want to insult readers' intelligence. I trust that if you are reading book two in a trilogy, you likely have read book one. And some people, because these books came out so fast, they've been able to read them almost back to back instead of having to wait. I think when you write books that are like two, three years apart, that's a little more necessary. But when they're so close, a lot of people really read them both in like one sitting because they found it like this year. So when you are writing a book and you're releasing it every couple of years, how do you grow with your audience? Do you change? Like, do you say, okay, this is the second book and my audience is a little bit older now, so I should probably include some elements of this, that, and the other. Does it change your technique as you sit down from book to book? A little bit. I think the books change because I wrote Beasts of Prey when I was 22 years old and I'm now 29. So I've learned more. Like I really believe in, and for me, professional development is continuing to seek mentors and continuing to read. And I'll read books and be like, I really admire the way that author did that. I want to be more mindful about doing that in my own books. So the books, I think, grow organically, whether I wanted them to or not. With Harry Potter, it's such an that's such an interesting phenomenon because those started as middle grade sort of books, mm-hmm. but the seventh book is YA. It's like it's it's pretty heavy. Yeah. Um, I'm a little more fortunate in that Kofi and Ekon, what's happening to them happens in the course of like a month or so. So I don't have to worry about, okay, they started when they were 12 and now they're 18 and they have different problems. That's sort of in my favor. And I think I might've done that on purpose subconsciously. I'm like, I don't know who they would be necessarily when they're 21. These books, I think, are just as enjoyable for adults as they are for YA audiences. But hey, you. you, but what is it about that age of audience? What is it about writing to that audience that appeals to you? I think it's a few things. I'm a millennial. I grew up during the YA boom which was really cool. Like it was really cool to be a teenager at a time when the world actually cared about teenagers and actually wanted to write books to appeal to teenagers and not some dumb kids. And again, it showed when teens care, there's money to be made to be real. So I grew up with that. These books had a huge impact on me for better or for worse. Like I was a huge Twilight fan, a Hunger Games fan, Divergent, Maze Runner. It had such a huge impact on me when I was a budding writer that I think I always was going to be drawn to it. But I like YA because these are stories of people finding their place. And even like I remember being 17 and finding my place, but that's a very universal experience. I'm 29 and I'm still finding my place in this chapter. I'm 46 and I still am. We're constantly and like that speaks to people. And so it's really cool when I have like these are recommended for 12 and up technically officially, but I'll have 11 year olds who can read it. But then also an 83-year-old pastor who's messaged me like, I read them and I, that resonated with me. And that's a really, I think it's because these are two people trying to find their community. And that's something that regardless of where you come from or what your walk of life is, a lot of people can relate to that experience. The books are Beasts of Prey, Beasts of Ruin, great books. I love them. Um, and I can't wait to read the third one. When is the third one coming out? Ooh, when I finish writing it, it's due very, 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 very <laughs> soon um, to my editor. But it's a process, you know, and actually there's another author, YA author, who's like my hero. Her name is Seba Tahir. Um, and she said to me once, she was like, readers will be mad at you for a late book but they'll forgive you if it's a good book. They won't forgive you if it's a fast book that's not a good book. So, you know, and they're still coming out pretty fast. Like I'm, I love George R. R. Martin, but like, I'm not taking that level he's of time. Finished. No, he's not. <laughs> but I feel for him because it's, it's also, there's mounting pressure too. The more books you put out, so you have more pressure to get it right and to grow and show you're getting better. So 
that's a like really long answer, but um, the hope and the idea is that book three will come out in spring 24. Ayanna Craig, thank you so much for being in the bookcase. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Ayanna Gray, Rapid Fire, lesser known book you recommend to everybody. Little Thieves by Margaret Owen. Why? Incredibly rich world, Germanic folklore. It's funny. It's like some of the most flawed, beautiful, realistic teens I've ever read. She teaches me. Margaret Owen, like reading her books, has taught me to be a better writer. Most influential book in your life? Maybe Charlotte's Web. That was like the first chapter book I ever read. And it changed the way I saw the world. Maybe. Why? Because I believed all of the spiders were Charlotte's daughters. <laughs> and I, no, I, I developed like a, a real compassion for animals. I'm a vegetarian, probably because of Charlotte's Web. Well, we don't eat spiders, so you actually would have been okay. Well, the first line of Charlotte's Web is, yeah, Papa, what right. are you doing with that axe? Yes. <laughs> like, I, I, I saw like kind of the soul and, and the, hum- like the, yeah, the, the soul and kind of living things and appreciation for living things. Do you read your reviews? No. Why not? Protecting my peace. <laughs> I choose to love myself. <laughs> if you're reading a book and you know you don't like it, do you put it down or do you finish it anyway? More and more I put it down. But I investigate why I put it down. Like, what about it made me put it down? And is it just a me problem or is there something here that I can learn from? Revered book that you read that maybe you're sorry you read. Revered book that I read. Revered by who? <laughs> there, there are <laughs> That's books that an are, interesting question. There are books that are revered that I'm like, hmm. 
I'll give you my answer. I really wish I could get the months of my life back that I read James Joyce's Ulysses. Never mind. I've got two answers. Go I just, ahead. Hit me. Scarlet Letter and yes. um, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. I've made a TikTok about how much I dislike that book. And vegetarians usually love The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. It makes people turn into vegetarians. <laughs> by then I was already committed. And I'm like, you see? You see? But I, they, I was forced to read it when I was 15. And I was like, this was completely... Never mind. Upton Sinclair and Nathaniel Hawthorne. Yes. If I wasn't a writer, I would be a zoologist. A bad one. I'm terrible at science. I'd be a fundraiser for a zoo. I would like very passionately convince people to give to a zoo. Which is a way you can work at a zoo without science. Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we stole this question from Stephen Colbert, but we think it's really illustrative. In five words, what do you want the rest of your life to be? Oh, um... Five words that I want my life to be. Um, adventurous? Fun? Meaningful? Funny? And... Oh, I need a word. Loving? I'll take it. Full of love is several words, so I couldn't say that. <laughs> Loving. <laughs> Such Thank a deep question. So Thank you so much. I really Thank appreciate you Thank you so much for having me. Kate, what I was most interested in there is her mode of operation, that she writes the Wikipedia page for her world that she creates, and that's the way she can keep straight what needs to happen in the world. It's all set out in the Wikipedia page. I'd, I'd love to see the Wikipedia page, how long it was, what it contained that she wrote before she wrote these two books and the third one to come. It's probably a very long Wikipedia page, and I think it speaks to folks that want to write fantasy. You know, I think a lot of people think, oh, I think of a world and then I write it down. I think Ayanna Gray showed how complex creating a world can be. You know, when she talks about, oh, um, okay, so I get into the third book and whoops, a character got married. Now I have to go back to my Wikipedia page and check what I wrote down about ceremonies for weddings. She uses that page constantly as her encyclopedia. She doesn't have it all worked out in her mind all the time. And I, I really like that. I really like that she sort of talked about the blood, sweat, and tears that go behind creating a fantasy world and the amount of work that goes into creation before she even sits down to write, you know, the first word. She's not quite like John Irving. She probably doesn't just stare out a window for three months. But in some ways, fantasy does not allow a writer to avoid research. I think that's what I sort of took away from that. I leave fantasy, the category of fantasy to you. What makes a really good fantasy book in your mind as opposed to one that really doesn't deliver? I think that if I'm emotionally involved, that says quite a bit. If I really care about the characters, I think sometimes it can be easy to make fantasy I'm not one of those people who like dragons talk and they walk through the world and they go, forsooth, forsooth. That to me is sort of ridiculous. I have to be emotionally involved in the characters. I have to be emotionally involved in the world. And it has to have a magic that I can believe in rather than a magic that's flimsy that I find sort of ridiculous. So it has to be realistic. In other words, if supernatural things happen, you turn off or is that okay too? That's okay, too, as long as I can follow along, as long as it's funny. I don't know. Maybe I don't know how to. Maybe this is like pornography. I don't know how to define great fantasy, but I know it when I read it. It's just something that keeps me reading the whole time and doesn't pull me back and go, oh, this is ridiculous. 
And that has happened a few times. And I will also say, sometimes fantasy gets too dark for me. All respect to Game of Thrones readers and George R. R. Martin fans, Game of Thrones is too dark for me. But I get why a lot of people like it. So, you know, I don't know. Fantasy is, again, I can't put my finger on why I love certain fantasy, but I did love Ayanna Gray's books. And I'm super excited that she talked to us. And I can't wait to see what she does next. And I can't wait to see how this finishes. (laughs) In the third book. For our bookstore this week, we have one that's sort of special to to the both of us. Well, it's in Park City, Utah, where we have spent a lot of time skiing for a lot of years. And when we're there, we always want to drop in to Dolly's, which is right on Main Street. Right, Kate? Absolutely. And when you go in, you're going to want to look at their books. It's a fantastic space. They have a wonderfully curated collection. And of course, you're going to want to pet a cat or two. So here's our conversation with the manager, Michaela Smith. Michaela Smith of Dolly's Books in Park City, Utah. I have to tell you, I have a real personal connection to Dolly's. I used to go all the time when I was little or yeah, very little because I've been going to Park City since I was littler than that. Was Dolly a cat? Is Dolly multiple cats? Like, who was Dolly? So the original owner was Dolly Mankoff, whose family made it big in Salt Lake City with department stores. And she decided she wanted to do her own thing. So she opened Dolly's Books and Clothing back in the 70s. And so she was the original Dolly. And what she did is she also worked with what has now become our local Friends of the Animals shelter. And she would adopt cats out of the bookstore. And so we now that she retired have cats in honor of that tradition. And we just always have a Dolly cat. So our current cat is Dolly number three, Mr. Dolly, actually. He's coming into himself. Yes. We like to say you get the job based on your looks, not your gender. Um, Because Dolly (laughs) always has to be a black tuxedo cat. So, And what does he read? Dolly. Does he like fiction, nonfiction? His preferred genre is humor, actually. And he's a big fan of the oatmeal. Especially the book that they had out about how to kill your owner. That's from the perspective of that. <laughs> <laughs> that was really big. It's, it's very interesting having a bookstore in a ski town. It's a seasonal town. Park City just grows by geometric sizes during the winter and then yeah. settles down in the summer. Do you do a year-round business or is it are you mostly dependent on or a lot dependent on the tourists? We're pretty dependent on the tourists, but we have seen in recent years a huge boom in summer traffic as well. All the <laughs> outdoor recreation, biking, hiking, kayaking with the reservoir nearby. We're still pretty seasonal. Our off is spring and fall, but our local community keeps growing as well. Is there a difference between what the tourists want and what town people want? Not so much anymore. There used to be a bit of a discrepancy, but it is funny to see the different types of people that travel here for ski vacation versus like a bike vacation. Literary fiction customers, especially during the winter. During the summer, we get a lot more of the people looking for the Western vibe and the easier kind of stuff. How did you end up at Dolly's, Michaela? So I actually am one of the few remaining... I grew up here in Park City. And so it was really the first job I got out of college. I went to the youth. I wasn't far away and kind of fell in love with it. It was always my childhood bookstore. So it was great to be able to work there. And then it's, you know, we don't have a ton of staff turnover because it's an awesome place to work. And so it ended up that I just slowly worked my way up and the old manager that 
trained me the whole time I was, I've been here, decided to retire. And so she was like, do you want to take over? And I was like, yeah, I do. Was there a book though, that made you a book addict? Oh gosh. Um, yes. My uncle is responsible for giving me that book. He is a huge fantasy reader and he knew that I was also a nerd as a child. So he sent me all of the books that he was cleaning out of his closet when he moved. It was like cases of books. And so it was the first one that he gave me that I was just obsessed with was The Belgariad, which is a big giant series by David Eddings, kind of like The Wheel of Time. What was on your Christmas list? This year, books wise. Oh gosh. Um, I really, really wanted the new edition of the Lord of the Rings that came out and it's a leather bound red cover with the gold. Yes. Really expensive. Yes. Yes, it was. That was the one on my list, which of course nobody bought me because I in a bookstore and so they're like, buy it yourself. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I found I got less books this year since I started this podcast. And, you know, people in my life, not cool, (laughs) not cool, not cool. Kayla, if I came in today and I'd be like, Michaela, I'm looking for like two, three solid recommendations. What would you give me? Definitely the Barbara Kingsolver. She's amazing. We're reading it for our book club, actually. So loving that. And then I have to give a shout out to one of my actual staff members. Her name is Ashley Silver and she just wrote her first book. And so we're selling that and it's awesome. It's a lot of fun. It's like a fantasy adventure. And then I would also have to jump on the bandwagon and say the uh, new Prince Harry book is really fascinating. (laughs) It's scandalous. It's crazy. All right. We appreciate you being with us. Yeah, thank you so much. The manager of Dolly's Bookstore. It's on Main Street in Park City, Utah. You have to look a little bit to find it. It's not its not the biggest store with the biggest marquee in the world, but it's worth a visit. Michaela, thank you. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you so much. Our conversation with Michaela Smith at Dolly's Bookstore in Park City. It's fantastic. I recommend you stop by. It's a wonderful location and they have great cats, as I say. So got to stop by if you end up in that ski town. Now, I got to do a little bit of a plug here because ABC Audio has given the bookcase a tremendous presence on social media. Now, I know you thought you would never need to necessarily see a compilation of me laughing at everything David Sidera says. I know that you would love, though, a book recommendation from Sadiq Fafana. Well, if you follow us at ABC Audio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all things Bookcase Plus, you'll get all sorts of updates about our show. And they've got a huge master list of every book that we have talked about. And it is updated every week along with news from the Bookcase. So you're going to want to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all things Bookcase at ABC Audio. And thus endeth the plug. <laughs> uh, we do want to mention the people from ABC Audio, who are responsible for this program. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. So, our coda, Kate's and mine, comes from one of the great books of all time, right, Kate? Yes, it is the fantastic, the prolific, the incredible philosopher Lemony Snicket, who says never trust anyone who has not brought a book with them. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though... It's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid.
1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 